Oh, good morning, Will I Burn. I just want to start this morning by thanking all of you. Like, first of all, I want to thank you for getting up early. Especially, want to thank mums and dads that do the hard yards trying to get here. I want to thank Barb and the team for the music. It was really cool. Nice font, by the way, as well. What was that? Avenue New or something? Oh, it was really cool. And just wanted to thank you for being my church family because. I really need you and I love all you guys and you know God's doing a work in me. Sometimes my love ebbs and flows, sometimes I'm irritated, sometimes I'm this and that, but the Lord's just really faithful and I just really want to thank you for joining me and joining us and me joining you on this journey. It's just something really special and um, I wanted to thank you for that because you're awesome. Capital A, awesome. So I'm going to pray. Father, thank you for your word. Your word is a sword, a hammer, it's a fire. We'll be foolish to think that this morning uh, there isn't some sort of work by the enemy to distort, to embellish, to antagonise, to torment and to bring hopeless futility. So I pray against his power in Jesus' name. We pray, our Lord, for the full power of your spirit to break through deception in our midst so that we might know you truly because you're worth knowing truly and fully and comprehensively. So thank you, Father. Your word, in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Today we're just continuing our Know Your Enemy series, which was that theme that we felt God really put upon our hearts and led us into. The previous theme was First Love First, the splendours of the Holy Spirit. And if you go to our website, you'll see that both sermon series are up there. And I really encourage you, if I could, I would have, if I had time, I would have put up a slide just showing a circle of the three Know Your Enemy sermons with the seven Holy Spirit sermons, because... As you'll see by the end of this sermon today, they actually go together because first love first is often interrupted, contaminated, congested by the work of the the enemy, of Satan. And so it's really important to understand on one hand, know your enemy, but on the other hand, to know the splendour and the magnificence of God, our spirit, um, our spirit God as well, uh, of God, the, the Son, the Father, the Holy Spirit. Last week I said I could pull out any song any paragraph of any song and it would tie in and I could do that again today and maybe I will at the end if I, uh, if I remember. Uh, but again, it's just, uh, it's just a cool thing. So know your enemy. First love first, know your enemy. Uh, today what I wanted to do to finish off with was for you to understand your vulnerabilities without your armour, for you to understand what it is that strengthens this armour. There is a quintessence, there is a something in this armour that powers it up. It is not meant to be used in isolation. Uh, so as I intro, if you would like, turn to Ephesians 6. Very, uh, very well-known verses amongst Christians in general to do with spiritual warfare, the whole armour of God. And today we're going to look at our vulnerabilities when we don't have the armour on. So just a little bit of revision, first of all, though, as you're turning to Ephesians 6, you remember sermon number one in our Know Your Enemy series was are you afraid of the real threat? We're afraid of many things in our lives, but are you afraid of the real threat? And I'm hoping that you can all remember the real threat. We looked at a number of threats. We looked at Satan's name, the serpent, the dragon, the malevolent force that is at work to destroy your relationships, your families, your lives. We looked at his character, his intent, his power, his authority, and we could have said, wow, that's scary. But the Bible told us never, ever, ever to be scared of the enemy. 
We're told to respect that power and to be aware of that power, but we're actually told to fear God who can throw you into hell. Let that sink in. Let it sink deep into your soul. It's not me saying it, it's Luke, who, powered up by the Holy Spirit, recorded the words of Jesus. Fear him who, after the killing of the body, has the power to throw you into hell. I actually believe most of our societal woes are because we have lost the fear of God. If you have a fear of God, you are afraid of doing bad stuff in the dark. If you don't have a fear of God, if you can hide it, you can do whatever you like and you can couch it in all sorts of terms. Jesus just cuts straight through that. And then he follows up as he always does because his love is not a fairy floss love. It is a ferocious love. It's a ferocious love. It will not countenance, it will not put up with you believing in your head that he's a fairy floss grandfather in the sky. So don't be afraid. You're worth more than many sparrows. That's come straight after fear him who can throw you into hell. I'll just, I love that because that is summing up in symmetry who God is. Be very afraid of being on his wrong side after he has done everything for you, including creating you and putting your molecules together. And then understand that he cares for you so much that he bled out on the cross. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? Yet not one of them is forgotten by God. Indeed, the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Don't be afraid. You're worth more than many sparrows. That was sermon number one. And then sermon number two was we are not unaware of his schemes, of Satan's schemes to come and distort, deceive and contaminate your relationship with God and your relationship with other people. As Paul himself said, this was... uh, What he was afraid of was that you would lose your sincere, the church there would lose their sincere and pure devotion to Christ and that there would be this scheme unto death. It was a death scheme by Satan, a death scheme that is at work right now. In this church, he would love for this death scheme to meet with success. In the world where your workplaces are, where Kathy was sharing, where Gabe goes to uni, where I go and, and go and do my bits and pieces, there is a scheme, a malevolent scheme that's at work all the time. It's a scheme to death. Does anyone remember the death acronym? The D, distort. Good, to distort truth. And we said there that the command of God is generally distorted. The creator himself is distorted in who he is. The creature, you, are distorted in your perception of yourself and each other, and then creation. All of a sudden, all these things that we lust after that are only doomed to die become everything. They become our God. Command, creature, creator, and creation. That is the four ways in which Satan distorts things. If you weren't here, I invite you to go and have a look at it. The E was embellish, overstate things, overstate how long your suffering might last understate the consequences of falling away, all that kind of stuff. Have a look again last week. Antagonise, antagonise in terms of your relationship to God. Bring antagonism between each other. And then, of course, that brings suffering, it brings torment, and that, in turn, brings hopeless futility. That was sermon number two last week. And then we saw in sermon number two last week how his malevolent death scheme targeted the Lord Jesus Christ, in the wilderness. And we saw how Adam, the first Adam, was compared to the second Adam. There was the desert and there was the garden. 
And, G and Jesus had not eaten for 40 days. He was at his weakest, humanly speaking. And yet he triumphed. He triumphed where Adam fell. He had everything in the garden, everything. He was sweetly satisfied. Jesus had nothing in the desert and Jesus triumphed. That's cool. I invite you to go and look at that again. And then we saw that there's all this scheming going on, but there's a master scheme. There's a master plan. And it was God's master plan that in all this scheming, Jesus would get inside it. He would become, um, even he that is sinless would actually become like sin on the cross and be punished. And therefore, the, the barb in that kind of death scheme was just taken away. The defeat was comprehensive because Satan has nothing left. There's no cutting edge to his scheme anymore. That was awesome. God outwitting, outplaying, outlasting Satan's master scheme by being executed himself. So today, I want to ask you the question, what if you don't armour up? What if you don't put on the full armour of God as we are told to do in Ephesians 6? Let's read together from Ephesians 6 verse 10. Finally, so this is the end of the book, the end of the letter that was written 2,000 years ago. We're reading words here that are 2,000 years old pretty much. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armour of God so that you can take a stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. I want to thank Barb for her prophetic pictures that she often either puts up or gives us in words. So... You know, you, you read that, I'll read that again. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. So that picture up there, you see the top of the surface of the water and you see beneath it. And I want you to understand that as we, in our limited perspective, look out on spiritual matters, we are just seeing the top. We are just seeing the surface, but beneath it is a whole other world. It is connected People often say, is it spiritual or is it physical? I say it's always both. There's always the spiritual underpinning the physical and the physical can often affect the spiritual. It's like a circle. That's how we are. We are spiritual and physical beings. That's how the world is set up. We don't know all the details of that, but understand it is not something small. It is not something ethereal. It is not something like a little fog or cloud drifting about up there somewhere. It is as real as the depths of the ocean and as big as the depths of the ocean and as there's more species in the ocean than there is on land. Underneath the water, then on top of the water or adjoining the water. So therefore, verse 13, put on the full armour of God. So I haven't made a big deal about this in my sermon to come, but I want you to understand that Paul is assuming there is something for you to do. There is something for you to put on. There is some active thing that you should be doing. So I want you to know right from the start, if you are passive about this, you do not have the armour on. Therefore, put on the full armour of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground and after you've done everything, to stand. And turning over there to verse 14, stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take up the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, and pray in the spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, 
be alert and always, always keep on praying for all the saints. So what if you don't armour up? Now normally, I'm sure you've had sermons on this before, we go through each of the items of armour and we see how they tie into uh, spiritual metaphorical truths of who we are in Christ. And today I just want to flip it around a little bit. We're going to do a little bit of that, but mainly we're going to look, about, look at what happens if you don't armour up. What happens if you are unprotected? What happens if you are vulnerable? First of all, in verse 11, we are told to put on the full armour of God. Again, in verse 13, it says, therefore, put on the full armour of God. You got one bit missing, you're vulnerable. Put on the full armour of God. Secondly, I want to say that this full armour is not just for uh, times where suddenly you find out a coven of witches is praying against you, or your wheat big starts levitating, or a witch doctor shows up on your front doorstep, all right, church, we must get into spiritual warfare now. Let us go to Ephesians 6. Let us get together and pray. No. It, that would be a good idea if that happened. I'm not saying... No, but what is far more insidious and dangerous is the everyday stuff. Now, Ephesians is a magnificent letter, and I'd really encourage you to read it this, this week. The first three chapters of Ephesians are all cosmological. He mentions spiritual powers many times. He mentions what's happened beneath the surface, the things that we can't see, the things that are going on in heavenly places. And then funnily enough, so he goes from cosmological, he goes right down to everyday stuff. He goes down to uh, relationships with one another, parents, husbands, wives, workers. It's just everyday stuff. And then he says, finally, remember we said finally when we started our Bible reading today, finally put on the full armour of God. So the full armour of God, because the death scheme is at work in everyday life, the full armour of God is for Monday morning. Okay, It's for Monday morning and, of course, every morning. It's every day of the week. Matter of fact, Paul prays like this. He says, and it's pretty much at the centre of the book, for this reason I kneel before the Father. I pray that out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being. So in your relationships with each other, with your relationships up and down across, uh, with your work situations, he's praying that you'll be powered up to know how wide and long and, how, and deep is the love of Christ, to know this love that surpasses knowledge. It's all about Monday morning, Tuesday morning, Wednesday morning. It's not about witches and demons and bits and pieces. It is about them, but it's for every day. Do you know, you know what I'm saying? So no armour. Well, if we don't put on the full armour, what are we vulnerable to? Well, we know last week that his scheme was a scheme to make you subtly, slowly, sometimes maybe catastrophically, Lose your sincere and pure devotion to Christ. And often I will consult different commentaries and I just wanted to read this one from the NBC commentary, New Bible commentary. It says, The careful reader of the letter will have no problem in understanding the nature of the fight against these powers or the content of the devil's schemes. He seeks to alienate humanity from God by disobedience and by ignorance, and by corrupted thinking. He tries to separate people from each other through the alienating sins of greed, falsehood, anger. Do you realise how alienating anger is? 
You can be the best bloke, the best woman in the world, and suddenly you lose the plot. Terrible. I knew of a, a doctor once who, he was such a nice guy. And then nurses and stuff and paras begin telling me of how he just loses the plot. That's all he was known for. 99% of the time, nice guy. Anger, alienating. Greed. Uh, I remember someone telling me about when families are together, they love each other and stuff, and then someone dies and the will comes out. And the lawyer who was often dealing with me, he said, actually she said, you should see some of the stuff that goes on. You think loving families? No. Greed. Alienating. See what it's doing? Antagonism. That's the A part of the death scheme. Distorting, making out as all this money and stuff's going to make you happy. It doesn't make you happy. By ignorance and corrupted thinking, separating sins of greed. Falsehood. Anger. They are alienating. So this is what the armour is protecting us against. But what is the armour's real strength? Maybe you've looked at each of these and you go, hey, truth. Truth must be its real strength because without truth, like we saw from Ben's sermon a few months ago, uh, talking about how his belt broke and his pants fell down. What a picture. We don't need to go too far with that. But all the equipment and stuff, uh, you know, gone. And actually, if you have a look at the order in which we're presented with the armour of God, the belt is first because back in those days, the belt would actually hold everything together. So you might say that is the most important thing, and perhaps it is because like we saw last week, if there are distortions of creator, command, creature or creation, or there's distortions about the consequences of what's coming or the reward of what's coming, then easily, easily we get fooled and we begin to live lives that are just pathetic. And you know, you see these guys that engage in truth wars and suddenly they're blogging about this, that and the other thing. They're blogging against Muslims. They're blogging against homosexuals. They're blogging, blogging against the corruption and the corrupt ways of politicians. They're blogging against this. Notice here, nowhere does Paul say your fight is against uh, the gay community, against Muslims. It never says that anywhere. And of course, we would have disagreement about lifestyle issues and about uh, what God really wants for people. Of course. Not saying that, but our real enemy, our real enemy are the principalities and powers, Satan, and what they do in terms of those alienating sins. And it's funny, it's not funny, it's sad, actually. It's peculiarly peculiarly sad that you see these people and there's something ugly about it all. You feel like you don't want to be with them. You feel like you want to be well away from them because they're missing something. They are disproportionating truth. It's not symmetrical. They are holding up God's righteous indignation against sin and forgetting about God's incredibly comprehensive love. So you could say the truth belt is maybe one of the most important, but I don't agree. I don't agree. So maybe we could say, well, what is the armour's real strength? Maybe it's the chest plate. I remember in Bougainville we had... um, chest plate, body armour. It was the old Vietnam stuff because that's all they could get for us. Our troop was the first troop to be on operation for a very long time. And they said, go over there on a peacemaking mission and all these people have got guns and stuff, but paint your your helicopter orange so that everybody can see you and uh, go out there and spread the good word. And don't worry, no one will shoot at you. We've got good intel. It's like, well, hang on a minute. Why are you giving me this body armour then? And so out we went and we flew about. And later on, we were to find out that orange was actually the colour of the enemy. That was the flag colour that the um, locals would raise when the enemy were about. No one knew that. But anyway, thankfully, people didn't shoot at us much. 
Uh, and this Vietnam chest armour was called chicken plate. It was ceramic. It could take one hit and then break. So if it was automatic gunfire, you were in a bad way. So a little bit inferior. Later on, when I was in Timor, we had much better stuff. It was carbon Kevlar. I was thankful for that and flying a better aircraft as well, which had a nice little um, armour plate, which I made sure was always well forward. Um, so when we look at uh, what Paul is talking about metaphorically here, though, he talks about the breastplate of righteousness. And, you know, interestingly in Thessalonians, he calls it the breastplate of uh, faith and love. I love that because people might go, oh, well, which one is it? Well, clearly, righteousness equals faith and love. If you've got a person who's faithful and you've got a person who's loving, they are just oozing righteousness, aren't they? They're the people that you want to be around, not the bloggers that are, oh, that guy over there is a heretic, and Muslims, halal, blah, blah, like, just, anyway. So the righteousness chest plate, pretty important, okay? And we do have a responsibility, I think, to consider where we're at in our day-to-day behaviours, to ask the Lord to bring more faith and love, to deal with ongoing sin, to repent. If we don't have that, then you don't have faith and love. More than that, um, oftentimes the breastplate would be emblazoned with the colours of your unit and of your nation, of who you had fidelity to. So think about your behaviours, think about whether there's faith and love, and that will have upon it emblazoned who you are loyal to. Or maybe it's not emblazoned, maybe it's all just yucky looking, covered with mud and other things, not from battle but from laziness. So the righteousness chest plate, that's pretty important. But is that the armour's real strength? Maybe it's the readiness GPs. Anyone know what GPs are? Does Peter remember? I oh, know. You were Navy where you didn't have GPs. <laughs> GPs are general purpose boots. Okay, we used to call them GPs, boots. The readiness boots. You need good boots on the battlefield. You need good boots. And this is a little bit harder to understand. But if you look at verse 15, it says, and your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. You might have a number of different translations that you're reading, but pretty much the intent and the original meaning, as far as I could ascertain from my commentaries and so forth, is that there is something about the gospel of peace as you consider what Christ has done, as you consider um, what that, that magnificent kind of descent of God from the cosmos, creator to criminal, so-called, and out of the tomb, there's something about that that brings inherent peace and then there's something about it that brings readiness, readiness to tell other people, readiness to speak, readiness to serve, readiness to give a reason for the hope that's in you. So, of course, if you don't have the readiness GPs on, there's no sense of peace, there's no sense of readiness to tell other people, there's no real outreach and that's a terrible place to be. Later we'll learn more from Rudgy about what they're doing and I'm praying that that will be a great time to encourage him but also to encourage all of you to pray for them in their work with Student Life or PTC as it's called now and also to, in yourself, consider how we can be ready, have the boots on. And there are ladies' versions as well, um, not just for men. Matter of fact, there's some awesome female warriors out there. But is that the armour's real strength? Maybe it's the faith shield, the faith shield. Verse 16, in addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. If this roof was ripped off right now, 
and we all looked that way towards the west, and all we could see, you know, in the movies, all just flaming arrows. What, what are you going to do? Luke, quick. What are you going to do? <laughs> Under the chair. <laughs> would you like a shield? Would you like one? Who else would like a shield? It, okay, so it's a big, massive Roman shield. Uh, most of these were actually probably leather or something you could soak in water. All right? So the water would put out the, uh, put out the, the flaming dart. Just again, okay, look beneath the surface of the water or look deep beyond what you see. That is the picture that is here. There's just, Satan's just, we don't know how many demons are. There's probably millions of them. And they're just all armed up trying to hit you with darts of discouragement, of distortion, of all the other things we talked about. Just a, a great cloud of them. So the shield of faith is incredibly important. Notice also that Paul at the end of this letter is not talking to you as individuals. Do you remember the basic working, calls the phalanx or whatever, of the, uh, the Roman legions? You would have seen it in the movies. Do you see what they do when that's happening? They were the most highly trained military to date. The shields go up, the shields go over, they only work together. So if you're out there by yourself, you think you're that lone kind of Christian and you're sick of the church and you're sick of this and that, you are highly vulnerable. And I've never yet seen a healthy Christian. All I see, and as we think in this context here, I've never yet seen a healthy Christian who's outside of the church, outside of a positive community, outside of a healthy kind of community. I've never yet seen it. And if you think about it, they're just walking around with so many wounds and darts and things like that. And just like an angry dog who kind of just, who's up to that point has been loyal and your friend, they're kind of in torment, they're hurting, they start to strike out, lash out at other Christians, lash out at the church. That's because the faith shield was probably lowered because faith in its purest, purest essence is strong dependence on God, depending on him. When you hold up the shield uh, of faith, your faith is connecting in a strong sense um, that need for him, that dependence upon him. So no shield, distortion darts, embellishment darts, not seeing things as they really should be. So is that the armour's real strength? What do you guys think? No. So you playing the game with me now. It's good. It, of course it's a loaded question. It always is. In fact, Roger said to me the other day, you always like start off with um, A, B, C, D, and then E or whatever is Jesus. We all know it's going to be Jesus. Like, <laughs> good, good. Everybody knows it. Because like in a detective novel, right, everyone knows what happens in a de detective novel at the end, don't you? It's solved. The mystery's solved. Yeah, you know that. And so that's like part of the game, isn't it? But the interesting part is, well, how do you get to that bit? <laughs> <laughs> and really what I'm trying to do is build it up to a climax, which is getting your eyes on Jesus. So I may well end up at Jesus today. <laughs> so verse 17 is uh, the salvation helmet. Take up the helmet of salvation. So Peter gave us a great sermon not so long ago on salvation, what we're saved from. Do you remember what he said we were saved from? Saved from hell? Yep. But that's not the only thing. We're saved from uh, the power of sin. We're saved from the power of fear. What else, Peter? Do you remember? <laughs> I remember those ones. So, saved from judgment, condemnation. Um, we're saved from all these other things. So, in, like I said, in Thessalonians, Paul calls this the hope of salvation. So you see what's happened there? You've got breastplate of righteousness, faith and love. It's almost like a triangle of power. And then a helmet, which is the hope of salvation. Faith, hope, and love. Faith, hope, and love. 
no, wrong. Faith, love, and hope. Doesn't matter because they all work together. But the greatest of these is, oh, wow, you guys know your Bible. So the salvation helmet, very important. We also know that our head cannot take too much in the terms of impact damage. So we need to be protected up there. For me as a pilot, a helmet was also a mounting device. That's where my night vision goggles go. Back in the day, it was also emblazoned with the colours of your commander. Uh, it was also, a, in some, and as it developed later on, it became almost a weapon, offensive weapon. Um, but Paul doesn't have that intent here. The main intent is it's the hope of salvation, that very critical understanding of salvation. Salvation from death, from sin power. And so many times as I think about all the different, um, I guess, attacks or, or, or things that can distort how you understand the gospel, coming back to that very basic, Jesus died for me, Jesus loves me. That's so important, isn't it? Think about the God who is big, mighty, powerful, and then goes to the cross. What a hope. What a hope. So important. I pray that that reality, I pray that that reality will be yours. Is that the armour's real strength? Some would like to be quickly going to the offensive part. And a lot of scholars have rightly pointed out that the critical parts of the Roman armour that Paul is modelling this on are missing, the javelins. The only offensive weapon that we know of in this scripture is the spirit sword. As he says there in verse 17, take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Without the word of God, you have no offensive capability. You have no connection to the spirit's cutting wisdom. This is every other part of the armour means that um, you are standing your ground, but the enemy is free to manoeuvre around you. The enemy is free to continue to fire his darts. The enemy is free to do whatever he wants. This is the only one that begins to take down the enemy. This is the only one with which you can advance against the strongholds around you in your family, in your work life, your uni life. And strangely, we have more commentaries, more books than ever before, and yet our knowledge and our use of the word of God is fallen on hard times. Statistic after statistic in the Christian world shows that most people do not read their Bibles regularly. A lot of them are supplementing it with high sugar podcasts and sermons and are not getting on their knees before the Lord day to day. Not saying you can't get something good out of podcasts and well-seasoned um, brothers overseas and sisters. But what I am saying is there is a place for you to open up God's word, to ask of him today for your daily bread and to seek him today in his word. That pure relationship. And you know what? The book, the words are just portals to God, conduits to God, to his character, to his values. Some of you already, as I say this, and maybe listening later on, are thinking, oh, yeah, well, I read my Bible every day, blah, blah, blah. Well, good on you. So what? It doesn't make you any better than anyone else. What we have to understand is that, is that we are pursuing God in his word. We don't want to be like the Pharisees. Yeah, they knew the word better than any of us, but they hated God and they killed him. So the spirit sword is so important. And it is, a real, uh, it is a real battle sometimes to do it regularly. I love listening to it now, going across the Darling Downs in my car, audio versions. 
I love just um, pulling it out really quickly when I'm trying to remember. We've got, got it on our phones now. It's awesome. I love having it as little memes that come up. All because, again, they might show me right in my moment of need who God is. And, of course, we saw how Jesus used the spirit sword. Every time he was tempted, he replied with scripture. That's our template. But is that the greatest? Is that the real strength of the armour? Now, what have I missed? Because I don't think that is the real strength of the armour. So you help me out. Did I miss anything? Belt of truth? Tick. What's next? Breastplate of righteousness, the body armour of righteousness? Tick. The faith shield? Tick. The GPs? Good. Tick. What else? Salvation helmet? Tick. What else? Sword of the Spirit? Tick. Oh, great segue. Thank you, Peter. <laughs> He's put his hands together to indicate prayer. Where is the armour's real strength? What have I missed in the armour? Do you notice how the armour passages are bracketed? So look at verse 10 for a moment. Finally, be strong in the Lord and his mighty power. And then he goes into armour up. Armour up. And then he finishes with, and pray in the spirit. When? Sometimes? Just at church? Just in your kind of morning kind of rush to get out the door? Just when something bad's going on? Can someone help me out there? I don't know if I've got the right version of the Bible. Pray when? On all occasions, with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the saints. So the real strength of the power, sorry, the real strength and power, the real energy, the vitality of this armour and its efficiency is directly proportioned to just one tiny word that everybody, not everybody, a lot of people just gloss over. Be strong in, in the Lord and in his mighty power. Do you know that word in, in Christ, appears literally dozens of times through Ephesians. In Christ you are saved. In Christ you are redeemed. In Christ you have wisdom, power. In Christ your armour is highly effective, energised and ready you are to do battle. Sorry for the little Yoda thing there. <laughs> Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Armour up, pray in the spirit on all occasions. This is very simple. So let me give you an example of how it's just working before. So Camille challenges with something. And I start feeling like, hey, I'm busy and I've got all this other stuff to do. Oh, no, something else to do. I pray. I pray. I pray, Lord, help me. Give me strength. I pray you'd power up your church. Even now, I look around. I see some sleepy faces. I know some of you are not really getting this. And I know some of you um, feel like it's distant. And far away. So I pray. I pray for you. And in my heart, my, my, your name is there. I'm praying in the spirit. Uh, you know, I, I looked two weeks, prior, uh, two weeks ago, I looked forward, I go, man, there's a lot on. I do not know how I'm going to do all this. Lord, would you power me up? And he does. Because that there, that bit there, with all kinds of prayers and requests on all occasions. So again, he's saying this armour is for all occasions. To be in Christ is for all occasions. So what you are really battling here is you are battling to stay in Christ. Isn't that funny? That's what we learnt in our uh, sermon on John, Remember? Abide in me. I love this Matt Redmond song. Have you guys heard it? Maybe I'll, I'll share it with you. Abide with me. Abide with me. Don't let me fall. Don't let me go. Abide with me. Abide with me. And then he's got in the middle there the Garden of Gethsemane. Powerful song. Powerful. Has anyone heard it? Abide with well, I think Gabe has. Yeah. 
Be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Armour up, pray in the spirit on all occasions. Now, as we finish, I want to finish off with the armour of the Messiah. So the armour of the Messiah, do you realise that in the Old Testament, Paul is drawing his armour picture from there? So Isaiah is a prophet around about, I don't know, 2,800 years ago, and his this is what he says, he said, of, of this nation that's just gone so horribly wrong. It, it's a terrible place to live now in, in those days. And he says, truth is nowhere to be found. Whoever shuns evil becomes a prey. The Lord looked and was displeased that there was no justice. He saw that there was no one. He was appalled that there was no one to intervene. So his own arm worked salvation for him. His own righteousness sustained him. Here it comes. He put on righteousness as what? His breastplate. And on his head, the helmet of salvation. He put on the garments of vengeance and he wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. He was zealous to save his people. And when it says there he put on the garments of vengeance, he had every right as God to pour out vengeance upon his enemies. Instead, his own garments became the garments of vengeance. So when you are asked to be in Christ, and in God and strong in his mighty power, you are asked to simply put on Christ and he already has the armour. And I could go through, and I won't in a whole bunch of detail, but I could go through how it is Christ's truth that is the belt of truth. It is Christ's righteousness that is the breastplate of righteousness. It is the salvation of Jesus that is the helmet of salvation. It is the faith of Jesus already demonstrated in excruciating ways. And all the rest of it. And so when we put in our armour, it's like, what should we be afraid of? I'm afraid that we will lose as a church and as individuals that sincere and pure devotion to Christ. You might end up becoming a religiously successful person, but just be a hypocrite. Or on the other hand, you might just become a licentious fool just out there delving into all sorts of stuff. And I often think as I look around the church and I look at my own life sometimes, there's this passivity. And I want to finish off now with a a story about an aircraft called Life Flight 8 from Canada. And I've had a lot to do with this story. I've kind of soaked in it for a long time. I've used it on a number of, I've used it in an article and I've also used it in a, uh, a course that I ran yesterday, oh, sorry, a couple of days ago. So Life Flight 8, very capable aircraft, two very capable air, uh, pilots, very, very experienced, two paramedics in the back. Noble call, called out to, uh, rescue uh, a, a baby in the middle of the night. What they do not know is that there are layers upon layers of distortion uh, in their own minds and then their supervisors' minds, the regulators' minds about whether that machine is safe. Distortion about whether, what those safety margins are. And so this machine literally starts up at midnight, only a few years ago. And it takes off. As it takes off, because of these layers of distortion, the aircraft captain is not where he should be in terms of his proficiency, his capability to operate that aircraft. Normally, there are all these checks and balances to make sure that people are proficient. Training, tests. There's a whole bunch of holes in that for him. As he takes off, he's trying to find the switch to the landing light to turn it off. Very dark, pitch black. The co-pilot has also, for some reason, failed in his 
proficiency. And so he's not looking where he should. He's looking out where there is no horizon. He's not looking at his instruments. And he is deceived as he takes off. He thinks the aircraft is upright. It is not. It is beginning to turn and to descend. And as it turns and descends, it picks up speed and velocity. And beneath it, there are a forest of conifers. The aircraft captain looks at the instruments and sees that there is a descent and that the aircraft has 30 degrees angle of bank. He says to the co-pilot, let's climb, but it's too late. The aircraft hits the trees, the pine trees. Rotors clash with trunk and timber. As you know, those rotor tips are spinning just beneath the speed of sound and it's catastrophic. The aircraft is ripped apart. It catches fire, all on board are killed. This is a true story. Later on uh, in a few weeks, you'll probably see it come out. I encourage you to read it and think back to this sermon. And as you look at the research and you look at the accident investigation, the um, check and trainers were very busy. The managers were very busy, so they were undervigilant. They were passive about what really counted. The regulator had seen that there are issues, but they were passive as well. And as a result, all these events converged on that night and they went quietly into the night. Just no resistance. If they'd have known what was going to happen, they would have raged. You, you know this poem, do not go quietly into the night. Rage, rage against the dying of the light, the Dylan Thomas poem. I kind of wanted to weave that into this story because I so often look at the church and it's just this passive life flight eight. Everything's cool. I'm cool. You're cool. We're good. Feel so nice up here. And then, <laughs> catastrophe, spiritual catastrophe. I'm not talking about being a prat here. I'm talking about reasonably, spiritually being empowered with your armour to rage against the dying of the light. We should rage. You know why God gets so angry? You think about your family and your family just taking all the hits from the enemy and then taking up alienating behaviours. Destructive behaviours. Oh, doesn't that make you angry? So why are we so passive? Why do we not rage, rage against the dying of the light? This is a dumb poem about the futility of death written by a guy who probably was as futile as anyone else. And yet even he could see there needs to be a rage against the dying of the light. Jesus himself says, wake up. Jesus himself says, stay alert. Jesus himself says, it will be good for my servant if he is ready when I return. If you don't know the Lord Jesus, it's time to rage against the dying of the light in yourself. I pray that Satan's power, his deception would be broken today. Um, we're going to finish off now with communion, but before I do, I'd like to read these powerful words that Peter wrote at the end of his life. He had successfully fought the good fight. He successfully utilised the armour of God. He successfully clothed himself in the Messiah's armour. And at the end of his life, he was still in Christ. He was like, he was, he was still joyful. He was probably crucified upside down very, very soon after he wrote these words. All of you clothe yourself with humility towards one another because God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Be self-controlled and alert. Your enemy, the devil, 
prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith because you know that your brothers and sisters throughout the world are undergoing the same kind of sufferings. And the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm and steadfast. To him be the power forever and ever. That's cool. Let's pray. Father, today, as we prepare ourselves to remember your victory, to remember your rage against the dying of the light, to remember that you didn't and you weren't content to remain passive about sin, to remember that you were willing to take the excruciating experience of the cross for us. As we remember that, oh Lord, let us not be passive. Let us think this week, maybe even get together in our twos and threes and or in A2 and 3, and wonder, as Paul there says, that we would pray for each other, that we would support each other, these shields held up together, that we would rage against the dying of the light. So I pray, Father, in Jesus' name, that you would help us. Amen. So I want you to remember Christ victorious. When you were dead in your sins, in your sinful nature, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave all your sins. He cancelled the written code. And he disarmed the powers and authorities and he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing, triumphing over them by the cross. So I'm going to break that bread, which represents the breaking of the body of our Lord Jesus Christ, who was in that moment completing his victory over these dark powers. Like I said last week, that's what God's victory looked like. And then three days later, there was the tomb busted open. More evidence in antiquity for the resurrection of Christ than most other historical events of that age. That's what we remember today. So in your own time, come forward, grab the bread, take it back, contemplate Christ's victory. Ask him for clarification of where that victory now, like a laser beam, needs to be targeted. Keep the, uh, the drink and we'll drink it together.